Come on, you knew I... <laughs> well, welcome to church. <laughs> wow. Just the reality sometimes, right? I mean, I've been a social worker for many years. That is the reality. I've been a pastor for many years, counseled so many people, and that is tame compared to what goes on in the real world. And, um, you know, it really kind of leads quite well into what I want to speak about today, um, which is um, around relationships. And when you get to that point in relationships where it is just not going well, right? Anyone been in those moments at all? If you haven't, then in another year or two when I ask that question, you will have your hand up. At some point, it is going to be like that or similar to that. Um, but before we kind of get into, the, I guess, the heart of what I want to talk about today, um, I guess my question is this, is have you ever had a love-hate relationship with something? Anyone in this room had a love-hate relationship? What would it might be for some people? Anyone got a love-hate relationship with something you can think of? Fried chicken. Fried chicken. <laughs> my son. <laughs> I want to apologize right now. Fried chicken. You love it, but it's not good for you, right? Running. What's the love-hate relationship with running? <laughs> Thank you, which makes my 21K um, all the more impressive. Thank you. Um, for me, probably technology and computers. Um, kind of on one hand, I love it. And on the other hand, just sometimes, right? It's just like the worst thing. It's like a demon enters the computer and it's just like it's giggling at you as it closes down. I remember when I was a student, a young student, and in fact, this is before we had cool computers. This was an old kind of system computer. I remember spending hours on this assignment, and then I hadn't saved it properly, and then I, I think I pushed the power button wrong or something like that, and the whole thing went boom, and nothing saved. Honestly, I just I died on the inside. But there's love-hate relationships with all sorts of things, whether it's fried chicken, whether it's running, whether it's computers, whether it's in relationships, and I kind of have a love-hate relationship with a lot of things. And if I'm honest, this is my honest moment, I have a love-hate relationship sometimes even with some scriptures in the Bible, right? <gasps> Sacrilege. All the religious people in here are like, you can't, you must love every part of it. Well, some of the parts of it are really tough. Um, you know, kind of turn the other cheek. Who finds that hard to do sometimes, right? When somebody is being a jerk to you and you're like, I must turn the other cheek. Uh, it's not so easy to love that scripture when the practical reality of that kicks in. Isn't that right? And here's another one that I struggle with sometimes, which is what Jesus said. He said, love your enemies. Everyone say, love your enemies. Now, that's a lovely concept, right? Anyone think it's a lovely concept? Who knows in reality that loving your enemies can be really tricky sometimes? And when we talk about enemies, I think sometimes when we read a verse like this, we can think of Roman soldiers with swords and killing people and stuff like that. No, no, forget all that stuff. We can think of ISIS overseas and all the horrible things they do. Forget that. Often your enemies can be the people closest to you if, you, if, you, if, it's, if you're you know, being honest with yourself. It's those people you feel like are coming against you. And we all have people in our lives like that whether it's work colleagues, whether it's family, it doesn't matter. But enemies are people who you feel are coming against you. And then yet Jesus says to love them. And when he said that, it must have been really difficult for his listeners because in the context of what he said, they were living in a culture where they did have Roman soldiers who were crucifying people publicly. 
if they in any way thought that you were coming against the laws of their nation or the culture of their nation. It was brutal. And so really they were in the whole kind of idea, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which I must say for me often sounds way better than loving my enemies, right? And I think that's the culture of the world. The culture of the world we live in today very much is very similar to the cultures of the world of yesterday and even in Jesus' time, which is like, yeah, you know, if you hit me, I'm going to hit you back. If you um, do something against me, then I promise I'm going to do something against you and perhaps I'm going to escalate it even worse. Forget an eye for an eye. I'm going to take a head for an eye. Do you know what I'm saying? And people just um, kind of bring down the fire in this world that we live in. That's the world's attitude. It's almost like the Terminator. Remember the Terminator? Yeah? I'll be back. And very often in our world, we are often like that towards other people. And um, so Jesus comes and he says, love your enemies. And I think there's really two parts to loving your enemies. The first part, I think, is attitude. And the second part is action. Now, the attitude is actually an important thing because attitude or action reflects your attitude. So the intention that you have in something or approaching something will often come out in the action that you have. And I remember years ago reading a really great little quote from Oscar Wilde, and he says this. He says, always forgive your enemies because nothing annoys them so much. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you know, that sounds great. I might forgive them because I know it's going to annoy them. I'm not quite sure that's the attitude that God wants us to have. That's not the intention. Because really the intention of just annoying them is really just to annoy them. It's actually just to be nasty. And um, in fact, I even heard of a story years ago of a preacher um, on a Sunday morning. And he was talking about forgiveness. And he said to his congregation, he said, How many of you have forgiven your enemies? And pretty much everyone put up their hand. And this was an older congregation. Uh, except for this one old lady. And he goes to this old lady. He says, um, hey, Mrs. Jones, uh, are you saying that you won't forgive your enemies? And she says, no, I, I don't have any enemies. And he goes, wow, that's amazing. And he says, how old are you? She says, 93. He says, that is incredible that you got to 93 and you have no enemies. And she says, yeah, I outlived all the old hags. <laughs> <laughs> so... <laughs> Attitude is important. Um, but the second part is the action. And I think it's one thing to have the attitude in theory towards loving our enemies, right? That's a nice concept while we're sitting down in church and it's all warm and cozy and we're cracking a few jokes. And, and that's nice. To, it's easy to love someone in theory, but in action, what does that mean? And look, I, guys, I, I'm not wise enough to have all the answers and we can't of course, go over all the possible scenarios of how to love someone in action today. But I do want to look at one little possibility that might be helpful for you. Maybe not in every situation, but maybe in some situations, this could be helpful for you. And um, I guess in some ways, it's like an action plan. And, you know, I want you to really consider what we're going to look at today, not because you have to love your enemies, and because, you know, like the Bible says, be doers of the words, not just listeners. You know, Jesus' brother, James, he says, you know, don't just listen, but do. You know, your faith without actions is dead. I understand that is part of it. 
But I don't even want you to do that just because of that. I want you to do that because the reality is, is unresolved conflict, it just builds and builds. It, it doesn't actually go away. It only gets bigger and deeper and wider. And, you know, a thorn bush is only going to become a bigger thorn bush. You know what I'm saying? And if you have seeds of discord and seeds of bitterness, I promise you, in time, it will grow to be something bigger. I've learned over the years in working with thousands of people, it's not if, it's when it comes out. People have stuff on the inside of them from when they were five years old, and at 50 years old, it will come out of them. I've seen it time and time again. So it's really, really important. And I think it's important in our culture as well, because I think very often we get into this kind of iPhone eye kind of idea we don't resolve things. And you see conflicts happening in our world today, uh, generational conflicts, cultural conflicts, racial conflicts, that you know, some people don't even know why they're fighting anymore. It's because my granddad believed this and his granddad believed that and their grandmother believed this. And you know what I'm saying? Like people are in conflict sometimes in generations and they have no idea why. It's just because of what it is, because they haven't learned to deal with things. And so I want you to learn to deal with things not just because you're a doer, but because actually it's really healthy for you and because I want you to have something incredible in your life to move forward. And so we're going to look at a story today that it's, it's a great story um, and it's on the prophet Elijah. Um, so for those who don't know um, scripture much, um, the Bible has these guys called um, and girls actually called prophets and they were really people in the Old Testament, which was everyone before um, Jesus' time. And uh, some of these prophets, they were actually um, the, the, I guess, spokespersons to the kings of those days. So the kings of those days, you know, they would often go to the pro prophets and say, prophet, what should I do in this case? And the prophets would often, you know, be the mediators. We think of priests, you know, in the Catholic Church, you know, you've got God up there and mankind down here and priests in the middle. Well, the prophets were seen a little bit like that. And they had this direct line to God. And, um, and so the kings would often go to the prophets to get advice and say, hey, what should I do here? And the, and the prophets would often talk to God and God would say, yeah, do this and do that. And that's how it works. So anyway, so and, and, very, and the other thing with um, this story is that the nations of that time, especially Israel, they were constantly at war with people. Uh, so it wasn't like New Zealand. You know, New Zealand's a very peaceful country. We really don't understand war very well. Um, but the people back in these days, they were constantly at war with people. So there's a lot of killing. There's a lot of that stuff going on. And so we're looking at Second Kings chapter 6, and we're going to look from kind of 8 to 23, go through these verses. And there's kind of two main kings at play here. One is Ben-Hadad. Now, he's the king of Aram, and he actually lived from about, um, uh, well, was king from 885 BC right through to 865 BC. So this is a real character. He lived and was the king for 20 years. He's not, this is not like Santa Claus kind of made up. These are real people who actually existed. And so this king was a bad king. He was considered the enemy in the story. And um, also we've got Joram, who's the king of Israel at this time. And these guys are constantly going back and forwards. And now the king of Israel, um, they are often being attacked. And, um, and then Elijah, and so the king goes to Elijah and says, Elijah, what shall we do? And Elijah has this direct line. And now we're going to pick up the story. And it says in verse 8, Now king of Aram was at war with Israel. Now I want you to put yourself in king Aram's shoes. 
So don't just think of war with knives and that. I think of the person in your life or the people in your life where it's messy, where actually you have a lot of conflict. I want you to put yourself in this story. So you're like this king. It's messy. You're at war with somebody. And after conferring with his officers, he says, I will set up my camp in such and such place. In other words, what he's going to do is he's going to ambush um, these guys. It's like a game of chess. And actually in our lives, that's how we're often tempted to play conflict, right? Man, we want to keep a record of wrongs. You know, we've got a whole list. We collect our evidence. We listen to every single word somebody says so we can hold it against them later on. And in essence, that's what this guy's going to do, but just from a war perspective. And then enters the king Elijah. And the king, not sorry, the prophet Elijah. And Elijah... Um, starts to get a direct download from God of going, this is how the Arabs are going to attack you. And so he keeps going back to the king of Israel and says, don't go here and do this and do that. And so this opposition king keeps trying to attack, but he realizes that he keeps kind of all his plans fall apart. And he realizes somebody is, is basically um, telling the king of Israel all the secrets and information of what's going on. And so he's really enraged and he says to all his soldiers and his people, who's betraying us? And the, um, and the people say, it's not us, it's Elijah, their prophet. He's hearing from God and, he's, and he knows what you're doing. And so basically what King Aram does is he says, I'm going to send people to get this Elijah guy and to kill him and to torture him and all sorts. So he's like, oh, I'm after this guy. So they find out where Elijah is. And then it says, as the enemies came towards Elijah, and so we're talking about chariots and armed soldiers, and it's like the SAS, it's the best of their best to get this one guy. It says, as the enemy came towards him, Elijah prayed to the Lord, and he says, strike this army with blindness. Everyone say blindness. So he, in other words, God struck them with blindness, as Elijah said. Now, what's really interesting in this story is if you go back in the history of Elijah, we see actually this kind of story has happened before, where armies have come against him, and instead of saying to God, strike them with blindness, he's actually struck them with fire, and actually a whole lot of people died. Like these prophets were really powerful, right, according to the story. And so he would pray and he'd say, God, destroy this army. And so 50 people who would come to get him, destroyed. And then the opposition would send another 50, and then they would get destroyed, and just on and on it goes. And so we see that Elijah has incredible power. He could strike them down with retaliation. He could do that. But he doesn't. Instead, he says to God, God, strike them with blindness. And I think it's partly because Elijah realizes that Defeat only promotes retaliation. He realizes from the past, if you just destroy these people with vengeance and with conflict, it's only going to breed more vengeance, more hatred, and more conflict. Is anyone listening? Yeah, you hearing what I'm saying here? For him who has ears to hear, listen to what I'm trying to say here. Conflict breeds conflict. And insult only breeds insult. Violence only breeds more violence. Really, that's part of the lesson. Of what we, so God gives Elijah, I guess, a better plan than what he had before, I think. And so he prays that their eyes be closed. Now, long story short, 
the, Israel, the army, the, the enemy army, the eyes are closed. Now, it's not that they can't see. It's just that they can't comprehend because what you see is that Elijah then leads them somewhere. He actually leads them back to his home city. So you're going to destroy Elijah. And then before you know it, you end up being, it's like Hamilton going to destroy people in Auckland, right? We're going to go and attack them. And then you come across this Elijah, you're blinded. And then um, all of a sudden, uh, you um, are led into the heart of Auckland where the mayor is. Right? It's like, like you don't want that situation, right? And so what happens in verse 20, it says, After they entered the city, Elijah said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes and there they looked and they were inside Samaria. In other words, they were in the heart of the enemy, surrounded by probably thousands of troops. The king is there. They are toast. That's the bottom line. They are toast. It's like, you know, going to fight ISIS and getting captured. And all of a sudden you are in the heart of ISIS by yourself. I mean, you, you're gone, right? You just, you're, you're toast. And so um, now what's really interesting is when these, when these soldiers are in the enemy's territory, the king of Israel says this. He says, he sees them. He says to Elijah, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? And so the king of Israel just wanted to destroy and to create vengeance. And actually, to be quite honest, it would have been a great story, right? It's like, ah, we won. It's a great victory. Yes. And I'm sure all his men would have gone, yes, it's great. We defeated them. God put them into our hands. And... Um, but Elijah has an interesting response. And I want you to listen to this because we're really getting to the heart of what I want to say. He says, do not kill them. He says, you didn't lift a hand to capture them and now you're going to kill them. He's kind of going like, really? Like, dude, you just sat on your throne, did nothing. And actually, I was the one to lead them back here. So in the first place, you don't have the right to do this. He kind of does because he's the king. But he's trying to say, look, you, you might have the right to do it. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Which is very true in life, by the way. You should write that down. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't make it the right thing to do. All right? That's another whole sermon right there. And instead he says this. Set food and water before them. What? They're the enemy. They came to kill me. No, no. Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. Wow. So instead of, instead of destroying them, he says, no, have a seat. Sit them down. Instead of a seat of vengeance, of bitterness, of hatred and rage, he says, no, sit them down in a seat of mercy. Sit them down and do something amazing for them. And this is an absolute contrary and conflict to, and counterintuitive to what they must have wanted to do. And so what's really interesting is later on, you see that they not only just fed them food and water, it actually says, so prepared a great feast for them. So we're now going beyond just water and bread and we've got chicken, KFC, yeah. Burger King, yeah, Pepsi or Coke, Pepsi or Coke, what is it? Right, Coke for some, Pepsi for others, it's a win, right? 
It's a great feast. There's like those wicked wings from Burger King. You've had those wicked wings from Burger King? I mean, the ones from KFC are great, but the ones from Burger King, honestly, amazing. Anyway, so they've got Burger, Burger, Burger King and all sorts. Great feast. And while it's interesting, you know, the king saw these guys as his prisoners of war, but yet Elijah considered them guests. Before we talked about, remember, attitude and action. Can you see the difference between attitude and action? Can you see how attitude will reflect action? The attitude of the king was to destroy. That was the action. The attitude of the prophet was love your enemies. Essentially, that's what it was. This is probably what Jesus is talking about when he's saying, love your enemies. And then listen to this. After they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away. And they return to their master. And this is the thing I want you to get when it comes to conflict, when it comes to that video that we saw in the beginning of those two people fighting in the relationship. Or maybe you think of the person and your work colleague is just like, ah, constantly. This is the part I want you to get. So the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. Whoa. So these guys have gone from killing and murdering and trying to conquer to they completely stop. It's like checkmate. If this is the game of chess, this is checkmate. It was so wise of Elijah. And you know, King Joram, he wanted to kill the Syrians. But what Elijah did is he killed them with kindness. Just killed them a different way. And Abraham Lincoln said it really well. He says, do, do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Interesting, huh? And I guess if you can remember any one thing today of what I'm trying to say is understand this, is that mercy defeats messy. Mercy defeats messy. Am I saying it always works? No. Can you always apply it? Maybe not, I don't know. But what I do know is there are situations where you need to stop and consider in the middle of your conflict, when you're taking your list of wrongs, when you're capturing every detail, when you're building up your plan to destroy somebody, to stop and pause for a moment and ask the question, maybe even pray about it and say, God, is this where mercy defeats messy? Is this my moment to go... I must love my enemies instead of trying to destroy my enemies. It's just the moment where I go, yeah, I'm right. But maybe I'm not about to do the right thing. Is this the moment where someone smacked you on one side of the cheek and you actually have to listen to what Jesus said and say, okay, I'm going to turn the other one. And I don't mean turn theirs, so you smack them and smack them back. And it's not what it's trying to say. Is this the moment where you need to stop and consider Maybe mercy will defeat messy. And I can say, look, I've done this really badly on many, many occasions. I've been that guy who has retaliated. I have been the guy who has returned an eye for an eye. I've done plenty of that. But there's moments, just every now and then, where I'll capture myself and I will return mercy for messy. And, and you know what I must say, when I, when I reflected upon what I was going to speak about this morning, I'd have to say that for the most part, when I give mercy for mercy, it has an incredible impact. Um, I remember, and I'll give a couple of examples. I mean, when um, Tim 
was younger, uh, just a, a, a little child. And I was a young social worker then working in Invercargill of all the places. You know how some people like Christians go, God, send me anywhere except for Africa. Yeah. Well, for me, my prayer was like, God, send me anywhere except for Invercargill. <laughs> you know, I just didn't want to go there. But I ended up there as my first social work job. Really stressful. We had three children under three. So nothing compared to Melanie and Craig, like 10 billion children. But three under three was a big task for me, right? And Timothy was really unsettled um, in that first year. And, um, and I remember with Timothy, you know, you could, I mean, he's only young, right? One, two, whatever. So you, you can't argue or talk too much anyway. It's not going to happen, right? They're a child. But, you know, you can get angry, you can get annoyed, whatever, you know. But, you know, what we found was the thing to defeat Messi. Our mercy in that time was just to give him a hug. It wasn't taking more toys in a way. It wasn't yelling. It wasn't giving a smack on the bum, anything like that. It was simply to embrace him. And he completely melted. That was the thing. Mercy defeats Messi. I remember a neighbor, uh, Reuben will remember him, Murray. Remember Murray? Muzza. We called him Muzza. Anyway, he was an interesting chap. And anyway, I, I would say for the most part, I don't think I'm a violent person. There's very, been very few people, don't laugh, um, I'll smack you. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, there's been very few times in life where I've gotten into a fist fight with anyone. I'm just, I'm just, I, I kind of shun that kind of part of life because I grew up in an area where I could have done that. And there's this little thing inside of me. You know, with some people, right, you kind of know, if you go down this road, you're going to be really bad at it. You know, like for me, like one of the things for me would be alcohol. I've never had struggled with alcohol, but there is just something inside me that I know that I have to be careful with it. I just know it. I've always known it. Even before I was a Christian, I just know that's the kind of thing that could take hold of me. Don't know why I know it. I just know it. And so I'm cautious with it. I do drink a little bit, but not a whole lot because I'm cautious with it. And violence is the same with me because where I grew up, that was where all the bad kids came from. And you were expected to be that guy. In fact, when I went to high school, which was outside of our little area we lived, we came with the reputation of we were those guys. You just we were careful with us because we were the guys who were probably going to smack you. <laughs> That's just who we were. And so, but I would say that I've resisted that in life and very purposefully. Um, because I just, I don't want to be that guy. And, um, you know, being a Christian was a massive part of that for me. It was a big part of it. And anyway, but there was this neighbor. His name was Murray. And he just was, he was an interesting chap. <laughs> and anyway, we got to this point where something had escalated. And he spoke really badly to my kids. And I was like, all right, come on then. <laughs> you know, not to fight, but it was like a verbal kind of... And, um, and, you know, he was always going to call the police. And, and I'm a pastor at the time, right? Like, it's just like, this is not who I am. This is not what you do as a pastor. But he was, honestly, I just, I wanted, very few times I just wanted to go with it with somebody. I could have with him. We didn't, thankfully, uh, which was good. Um, and so anyway, but afterwards, I was so unsettled by it. And I felt like I was in the right and I had the right to be angry because how do you talk to my kids like that? And I'm going to defend my kids. And how do, dare you have an attitude towards us like that when it's really unfair? I was in the right. But something inside me said, while you're in the right, this is not the right thing to do. And I remember just getting before God and saying, God, what do I do here? Because it was really, really messy. And I felt the Holy Spirit whisper this to me. Right? Act in the opposite spirit. It's like, whoa. 
act in the opposite spirit. But God, he deserves, he deserves for us to go for it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, maybe act in the opposite spirit. But God, you don't understand.